0: So a quick Mother's Day ode. My mom's name is Joan Perlman. She was a probation officer for many years with less than zero interest in sports. Or put differently, earlier today, I asked my mom to name New York's NBA team. We're from New York. And she said, Giants? But anyway, when I was in 12th grade, I wrote for my high school newspaper, the Mayo Pack High School Chieftain. And before handing in every article, I'd lie on my parents' bed and have them listen as I read the pieces word by word by word. And this was some seriously boring shit. Prep lacrosse, softball, soccer, gymnastics, football. But my mom, she would listen to everything. And she'd compliment everything. And she'd encourage me over and over and over again. Without those sessions, I'm honestly not sure whether i become a journalist. So thank you, Mom. For listening. My name is Jeff Perelman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Eric Sherman, the veteran author whose new book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers, is out now. This is episode number 311. Let's Sing Some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right. Eric Sherman, my former my former neighbor and sharer of a space in Starbucks, at a table in Starbucks. <laughs> years and years and years ago, y- you asked if we could meet, and we sat down and we talked, and you had written one book about former Dodger Glenn Burke, and you really sort of wanted to make more of a career of it. And like... Here we sit, whatever, 15 years later, and you have a bevy of books to your name. You're having this great run. You have a new book out, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. You must be giddy how this has all turned out, no?
1: It's been surreal. Um, So this is my eighth book. And when you and I sat down to have coffee at Starbucks at that time, um, I was working on a Steve Blast book, uh, but at the very beginning. So really, I had just the Glenn Burke book uh, that I had done, and that was it. Um, and you gave me a masterclass, first of all, on grabbing the attention of the, of the reader. That that first paragraph, that first page um, of any chapter, it's so important, or else you'll lose the reader. But as far as the, the subjects go, you emphasized you know, you have to make sure that there's an audience for it. Um, and that's what I've tried to do. And and um, I've had a couple of New York Times sports uh, bestsellers as a result. And uh, it's like I said, it's just been a surreal experience. Um, I've, um, you know, I, I am a little bit giddy about it because I, I keep thinking
0: I'm going to wake up from the dream. After a preface, your opening chapter of the new book is, uh, it's called A Reluctant Hero. And you're right. The legend sits alone in the crowded Dodger Stadium press box cafeteria, wearing navy blue blazer, light blue shirt, and dark sunglasses one late August afternoon. His face is round and his jet black hair is cropped short. He is almost ghost like in the sense that somehow it's easy to walk right by or sit near him with, without noticing the all time Dodger's great. An icon should light up every room they enter. Instead, this one tends to blend in. He sits alone, not because he's egotistical or self centered. In fact, quite the opposite. And a city built on larger-than-life superstars. Fernando Valenzuela is inhibited is an inhibited and reclusive one. All right, why'd you start with that? Because that describes
1: him perfectly. It's why there has never been a biography and certainly not an autobiography of Fernando Valenzuela. There's never been a movie on his life uh, because, you know, ironies of all ironies, he is the color analyst for uh, the Spanish-language Dodgers uh, network, um, but he avoids fanfare at almost every cost. Um, and it's true. When you walk into the press cafeteria, it's easy to walk right by him. Um, and it's not like, you know, you're walking past a you know, Tom Seaver or somebody like that, that, you know, it's like, wow, you know, he lights up the room and and you can hear him across uh, tables and all that. Nothing like that at all. Um, He really does blend in. He has um, a very small inner circle that he hangs with. He leaves games in in the seventh inning. Um, He doesn't do autograph signings like a lot of players do. Um, He is just a quiet guy, nice guy. I met him very briefly um but just a recluse and for someone that had the impact on millions of people like like he did you would just expect that he would be larger than life but he's anything but
0: that like on my, many of my books you did not really get to talk to fernando valenzuela at length and I'm kind of fascinated what were the different lengths you went through to um to try to get him to talk I went through the Dodgers I went through um
1: his his people (laughs) um i i went through um his broadcasting partners um who are terrific guys and were extremely cooperative uh with this book everyone was cooperative everyone wanted to talk about fernando but anyway to answer your question i tried every angle that you could imagine Um, and um it was always well he's not ready to talk he's not ready to talk Um, and, uh, in fact, originally I had ideas of working on an autobiography, if he was willing, but I quickly realized
0: that that was never going to happen. So you ultimately sort of had some words with him. What was that situation? It was really, um,
1: you know, it was, um, during the pandemic and he had, you know, a mask on and, and I actually think that he kind of liked the mask because, uh, you know, it it enabled him to be even more pro- private, in a sense. Uh, but no, just um, shook his wrist, actually, not even his hand, because of the germs, I suppose, uh, during the height of the pan- pandemic. And, you know, just said uh, to him, you know, I was really an admirer of what he was doing and, and was kind of hoping that that would lead to a conversation. But he was making his way to the bro- broadcast booth. You know, you bring up a great point. You know, you really want to talk to... subject if you can. And in this case, I quickly realized why there was never a a book about him, autobiography, film. It didn't stop me because I thought the story was so good. And a friend of mine reminded me of this terrific long piece uh, for Esquire uh, by Gay Talese, and it was entitled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Mm -hmm. And what Gay Talese did was he observed Frank Sinatra, followed him around a little bit, interviewed everyone inside his inner circle, outside of his inner circle, people that were touched by by Frank, and put together this one of the great long form essays, which was turned into a book. So that was really the model that I followed. As far as the form, it's very, very similar to Gay Talese's piece on Frank Sinatra
0: in the way that I went about it.
1: So basically you're saying this book
0: is better than gay Talise's piece on Frank Sinatra. Is that what you're saying? I never said that. I heard you say that. that. I feel like that is what you said. (laughs) We have to play it back. We have to play it back. I don't think I said that. I always have this debate. Like people say, well, can you say it was better? The book is better because Bo Jackson didn't talk to you and it caused you to do this and it caused you to do that. And sometimes I feel like we as writers will convince ourselves that because it makes us feel better. But obviously I wanted Bo Jackson. Like, do you, is how different is this book do you think, and what is the impact if Fernando says, yeah, I'll give you I'll give you five hours let's go let's go sit somewhere and talk in some respects, it would have been better, but in other respects no B because
1: uh, as you know when in autobiographies, let's say, you know say that he said yes to me and said yes I will you're you're the one you're the one that i I will finally choose after 40 years to do an autobiography with Eric Sherman. Well, you know, it's completely, from his point of view, over the years, people aren't as sharp on the facts. Um, I think the book that I have written, uh, interviewing nearly 100 people inside of his circle, outside and so forth, that it's it's not necessarily a truer book, but I think... There's more to it. And I think in some respects, it's a better book. But would I have liked five hours with him? Sure. Because there were some I I would have liked to have heard from him what he was feeling, you know, during Fernando mania, how he was feeling more than the facts because the facts you can always get. Um, but but what was going through his mind? Was he ever nervous? He looked so cool out there at all times. Uh, what was he really thinking when he when he got the ball on opening day in nineteen eighty-one when Jerry Rice and Bert Hooten couldn't go? And it was his first start of his major league career, and he goes out and pitches a shutout um over the Western Division champion Astros who had beaten the Dodgers on in game 163 the year before. You know, those were the types of things. What what was he feeling in that World Series game against the Yankees in game three when, you know, he was up to 147 pitches and he had struggled the whole game? And what was it like, you know, how, you know, was he cold in that game five against Montreal in 81 where he went eight and two-thirds innings and, and you know, put the Dodgers into the World Series – on what they call Blue Monday, the Rick Monday game, when he hit the home, home run. I would have loved those questions answered. How how he felt when the Dodgers re- released him uh, in spring training of 1990, a couple of weeks after he had pitched in Mexico and sold out the stadium there three three straight days, obviously lining the pockets of the Dodgers and doing so. Those were the, how, how he felt about those things. But he's so private. I honestly think the answers would have been very dry, um, very, very, very short. And I may not have gotten
0: much out of them just just from knowing what I found out about them. You know, do you feel like when you don't get access to a person, you cannot or can sort of interpret their feelings? Like, let's say you interview, I don't know, Rick Monday and Rick Monday's like, oh, man, Fernando was terrified. I just remember how scared he was, blah, 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 blah. Are you okay? Then saying Fernando Valenzuela was scared. If that's someone else's interpretation,
1: then I would word it that way. Like I, I would word it like um, Rick Monday looked over at Fernando Valenzuela in the dugout and sensed um, an angst about him, a nervousness about him, um, because I try to be as accurate as I can with in my books and. You know some people i mean i i was on tel- television the other day and you know i'm not on television a lot much less live te- television and you know i i was curious how people saw me like my heart was beating a little bit but um i asked my, my my daughter who was in the wings you know did i look nervous and she said no you look fine so i think it's i think it's hard um to get inside somebody's head, but you can certainly, you know, give someone's point, point of view
0: of of how they interpreted things. Sadly, we're older than many of the listeners here probably. And for you and I, Fernando Mania was a huge deal, even though I, you know, I was an East Coast kid watching it in New York. And I was actually surprised when I looked back. In 1980, he pitches in 10 games, he goes 2-0 with a zero ERA. Uh, and then 1981, he's 13-7. and with, with you know, 11 complete games and blah, 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 blah. And they go on and they win the World Series. But I feel like the numbers do a terrible, terrible job of actually capturing what Fernando Mania was and why it was such an enormous national thing. Um, you reference in the book, you know, Mark the Bird Fidderitz and his rise, and then later Hideo Nomo and sort of the uniqueness and them coming along, and Fernando Mania was right there with it. How do you explain sort of that phenomenon to people who just weren't there to witness it? What he did was he brought Mexican-Americans and
1: Mexicans and Latinos out of the shadows and into the ballparks. Um, I spoke to uh, Lyle Spencer um, about this, and he was a wonderful sports writer for many, many years in L.A. and New York. And he actually helped Fernando with his English So he knew Fernando pretty well. And what he observed was in the 1970s, you go to Dodger stadium and you might have 5% Latinos and Mexican Americans there. And there's a history behind that, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit. Um, But um, they just didn't go to Dodger stadium because there was some bitterness with the building of Dodger stadium. What happened with Chavez ravine, people were being relocated through eminent domain Uh, but there's a story to that. So anyway, they didn't go to Dodger games. Fernando comes along and everything changes. Um, every night he pitches, it's it's like a fiesta. There are Mexican flags and flags from other Latino con- countries as well. This stadium, it's at least 50 60% Mexican-American. He's bringing women out to games that, that, that hadn't gone, gone to games. Um, and this was happening all over baseball. There There was a game in New York the night that he won eight, eight wins and zero losses. And um, and the Mets weren't just a bad team in 1981, but they were extremely boring. And they averaged, at that point in the season, about five or 6,000 fans a game. Eric, this that- is Eric.
0: You were really, really... Disrespecting Pat Zachary and Craig Swan right there, like you're really disrespecting them.
1: Craig Swan barely even pitched that that year. I think he had like two wins. So even Craig Swan, see, I I, I knew you were going to ask that. I, I was ready with okay. my Craig Swan answer. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, officially, I think they drew forty three thousand that night. The night before, they had, they drew like five thousand. And and in nationally games, as you know, back in those days, it was just tickets sold. So they probably had about 52,000 fans there. They turned Chase Stadium into Mexico. I mean, it was. I I interviewed people that were there, and they had never seen anything like it. Um, I make the case that Fernando created more new baseball fans than anybody in the history of the game globally, and I stand by that. And to Mexican-Americans, he was to them what Jackie Robinson was to African-Americans in baseball.
0: First of all, somewhere right now, Craig Swan is listening. And number one, he's thrilled that we both remember him. Number two, he's hurt that you don't think he brought more fans to uh, to baseball than Fernando Valenzuela. <laughs> and number three, like Fernando, uh, later pitched after his heyday, pitched for the Angels for a brief span. Um, it is interesting, like. I, so I moved to Southern California about eight and a half years ago, and I think 90 point, no, 99% of humanity, maybe even 99% of people living out here, have no idea of the sinisterness of Chavez Ravine, where the where Dodger Stadium is located, which is basically, you know, it was generations of Mexican-Americans live there, and yeah. then it was just designated for, for redevelopment and becomes Dodger Stadium, and all these people are, you know, basically S.O.L., what is the relationship do you feel like between sort of heading into Fernando mania between sort of Mexican-Americans and the Dodgers and the Dodgers being where they once their families once lived?
1: Well, what happened? The The, the Dodgers obviously needed a home. New York wasn't co- cooperating with either enlarging Ebbets Field, which had a seating capacity of 28,000. Robert Mo- Moses was really responsible, even more than the O'Malley's for the Dodgers leaving New York, Robert Moses just wouldn't cooperate in giving the Dodgers a proper stadium. He had Yankee Stadium that, at that time, the original Yankee Stadium could seat 75,000. And here, Little Ebbets Field won 28,000. They couldn't compete with some of these clubs. You know, Cleveland's at 80,000. It goes on and on and on. So originally, Chavez Ravine in the early 50s that land, through eminent domain, was designated for affordable housing. So to be fair, that was the original task that was involved. Uh, then the Red Scare came about a couple of years later, and affordable housing was all of a sudden politically deemed to be socialist at best and maybe even communist. You know, these were the early 50s. So the affordable housing project was scrapped. Uh, well-intentioned. So all those people that had already sold their land to the city, and by the way, for usually 50 to 70 cents on the dollar, the Mexican-Americans were marginalized then. They still are today, but that's another story. But uh, a lot of them moved out. They took the money, and it's not like they could move anywhere in Los Angeles that they wanted to. A lot of parts of Los Angeles weren't exactly welcoming of Mexican-Americans. So anyway, um, there were families that remained. And here they're thinking, great, the housing project, it's its dead. We can stay where we've lived for three generations. Well, the city sells, sells the land to the do- Dodgers, and now they're being forced out. And, and they still weren't given what their homes were worth. Um, so some of them were like, we're staying. And well, what the city did was with some of these residents they were physically forcibly removed from their homes dragged from their homes and watched as their homes were getting bulldozed to make way for dodger stadium so this visual stuck in the craw of mexican americans for 20 years and still did when fernando came came along but fernando was one of them he was and, and and he wasn't a physical specimen He was pudgy. You know, he had a strange haircut. He was only 20 years old. He reminded Mexican-Americans of their older brother or their uncle. He was an everyman who was, for the first half of 1981 at least, the best at what he did. And he was very, very inspiring. And he brought those fans that had
0: sworn off Dodger Stadium back in droves. Was there any hostility toward the idea of Fernando Valenzuela, you know, making money for the Dodgers? No, there wasn't.
1: That's an interesting question. He was almost savior-like, you know, and and a lot of the women that would come out to the stadiums were actually seen praying in the stands. They were behind him 110%. You had mariachi bands there. You, and one of the most endearing scenes was when this 19-year-old girl, back in those days, you couldn't go to the souvenir shop and buy your favorite player's jer- jersey. She made this Fernando jersey at her home, Wore it to the game, ran out on the field, and gave him a big hug and kiss. And it was really as if the other fifty-six thousand fans in that stadium that they were all, they were all embracing him and kissing him as well, because that's what he meant to the Mexican American people. And so there was zero hostility. Uh, towards Fernando taking the Dodgers money. And we're not talking about a lot of money, money either. I think he was making the big league minimum, maybe $12,000 a year. Right. By that point, he, he he was making
0: his money doing Coca-Cola ads. <laughs> when I'm fascinated in a, uh, in a book decision, and this is not a criticism to be clear, because every author has a different approach and a different sensibility, but I am always riveted. Like my favorite stuff when I was reporting Bo Jackson, professionally, was his last year with the California angels when he's playing on one hip and he's a shell of his former self because I find the downfall really, really, really fascinating. And Fernando, his last years with the angel, uh, with the Dodgers in 1990. And then he jumps around for the angels to the Orioles, to the Phillies, to the Padres. I'm like you, a nerd about all this stuff. I didn't remember he pitched for the Cardinals in 1997 for five games and you devote, you know, I would say, I don't know, 70% of the book to his time with the Dodgers in that period and basically a chapter to the downfall. And again, not being criti- critical at all. We all make yeah. our own choices. Why so little on the demise? Well, it it was a demise, but
1: really the way that I approached it was his comeback. This was a phenomenon and you're right. I mean, he went on hard times. He also uh, pitched in Mexico yeah. and struggled there. Um, and I talk about that, that in the book as well. But what was fascinating to me was how he came back all those years later, uh, six six years after his release from the Dodgers. He kind of, well, during that time, he kind of bounced around and, you know, nothing outstanding. He um, kept trying to make come, comebacks, and, and then all of a sudden, he lands with the Padres, and he reinvents himself and really becomes a pitcher, a, a smart pitcher, and – helps them to a division crown. And, and I interviewed Bruce Bo- Boshi for this book, who is a rookie ma- manager for that Padres team. And he told me that one of his greatest regrets in baseball was not starting Fernando in one of the playoff games. Um, I think they got swept in, in, the, in the division series. And um, uh, because Fernando was such a tremendous influence on what was a young Padre staff. So yeah, one chapter, I probably could have gone deeper and deeper, but I think I hit all the points, but it's interesting. It's, um, there, there just wasn't a lot out there on his years with the Orioles, let's say.
0: Eric, I want to say, to be clear, like I'm not criticizing you for it because I actually think it's really fascinating. Like, you know, I'm working on a Tupac book now, which is random and weird and There are things about Tupac's life that I find riveting that I'm sure nobody else gives a shit about. And I'm sure there were things about Fernando's life that you found riveting that I would be like, oh, I don't, I don't really find that, that interesting. Like we're the navigators of these books, you know, and we're the narrators of these books. So I don't think anything's wrong with that decision. I just think it's interesting. And I also want to give you huge props because you, you interviewed, I love that you interviewed former Padre Scott Sanders, who number one, 12-year-old me thought was going to be what Fernando became. He Scott Sanders, journeyman pitcher, a lot of time with the Padres, 34 and 45. But he gave you one of the great quotes of your book, which is, he said he played with Fernando late in his career with the Padres. He said, I played with some really good players like Ken Griffey Jr., A-Rod, Sammy Sosa, Tony Gwynn. But I tell people all the time that Fernando is one of the best athletes I ever played with. People look at me like, are you crazy? But when we played together in 95, I was eight years younger than he was. We would go out and play and people always looked at Fernando and his big barrel chest and used to think he was out of shape. I'm like, guys, you don't get it, man. When I run, this dude is right there with me step by step. All right, I'm actually fascinated by this, and it's so nerdy. Why, of all people, did you talk to Scott Sanders? And how did that event literally, how did that happen that you talked to Scott Sanders? I have a dear friend who's one of the great biographers in the country.
1: His name's Jeff Perlman. And he told me to talk to everybody I possibly could because you never know. I'm so kissing Sanders, my ass here, Eric. I'm not paying you back. Stop.
0: <laughs> and Sanders, I, I mean, that's a great quote.
1: Great you quote. Know? How'd you find
0: him? Like, what well, I'm actually fascinated. Like why literally, literally, I mean, very literal and digital here. Did you talk to Scott Sanders?
1: I have to think it's because I, I interviewed another of the Padres and they players and they probably said hey you got to talk to Sanders something like that yeah. um i i i'd have to go back and check but, but 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 as you know like you know you talk to one per person and then they say hey you know you got to talk to this guy you know did you talk to this guy and and it's kind of like a web and just to touch on your play playbook about talking with everybody i never had it on my list to speak to Mitch Poole who's the Longtime Dodger equipment guy, and uh, and and he famously uh, prepared Kirk Gibson um, in um, in the tunnel, uh, or, you know to you know to get get ready to face Dennis Eckersley in '88, and um, and I, I never had him on my, my my list. And I had a great talk with him about how he had, he, he was the protector of number thirty four. Um, And kept anybody else who would come to the Dodgers from wearing it, including Manny Ramirez, who wanted to wear number 34 in homage to David Ortiz. And Mitch convinced him that number 99 was much, much better and all that. And, awesome. and that's, that's what happened. I mean, you talk to everybody. I mean, you, you'll you interview 600, 700 people, and and you never know who's going to give you that that gem, you know, that nugget. And, um, and so, you no. Know, that's why I was probably doing with
0: Sanders, you know, like you never know. It's the number one guiding principle for me. I swear to God of this whole thing, which is some guy on the Dodgers who was up there for two weeks, maybe Fernando wouldn't remember him, but that guy will remember the time Fernando offered him a hot dog. It's a whole thing about writing about iconic figures is they may not remember you, but you're going to remember them. Right. Before we continue with Two writers Thinking Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, who's taking the AP test tomorrow. Man, advanced placements are no joke. Advanced placements? Dad, I take gym, basket weaving, Celtic dance, theories with Kanye West, and the history of cured meat. Do you really think I'm taking advanced placement tests? So, what's the AP? It's a test sponsored by Royal Retros, the kings with throwback sports merchandise. They want to make sure all their spokespeople at royalretros.com are up to speed. I I don't get it. AP, Azusa Pacific, where Christian Okoye carried the rock. AP, Anthony Prado, twins outfielder, batting 152. AP, Arnold Palmer, golf legend, AP. I'm so confused. Why am I paying your tuition? Don't worry, dad. It all goes to my Coke dealer. But I'm going through something weird right now, which is, um. You know, in writing about Tupac, I'm meeting a lot of old rappers, right? A lot of old rappers, and they're—it's these guys who back in the day were full of bravado and they were full of piss and vinegar, and I'm gonna fuck you up, and blah blah blah, blah blah blah. And now they're like guys like my age, older, and they kind of have pop bellies, and they're like really lovely guys, but they're—but they're not the guys I remember in my head. You know, they're not the guy who I remember in my head. They're like suburbanites, and you know, they drive a. <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, you know, a Prius. And, and I wonder, you you and I, I think, are both fueled by nostalgia to a certain yes book. Our books are fueled by nostalgia, this love of the past and this love of... And I wonder when you work on these books and you're so engrossed in Fernando, just as an example, and Fernando, you're thinking of Fernando as 20, 21 years old, and then you see him kind of older and maybe he's kind of shuffling around a little bit or you see these different ballplayers and they're shuffling around a little bit. Does any of that hurt your heart? Yes. Yes. Because, you know, they remind
1: us that we're getting older. You know, I, I still think like I'm 28 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm 57. And when I see some of these ball ballplayers, especially, you know, Fernando actually looks pretty much like he did. He has a better haircut now. Um, but, um, you know, he's pretty much the same size and all that. And, and like I said, he he really kind of blends in now, but some of these other guys, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but you know, you see them and I mean, some of them are, you know, over 300 pounds. Some of them are 120 pounds now because they've been ill and that breaks your heart because you know, you have it. Frozen in your brain, you know, what they were like and, and what they look like and, and, and how they performed. And, um, and now they're, they're old men. And, um, it is hard because I think a part of it is it reminds us of our own mortality and that we're all getting old. And, you know, I can't believe that Fernando Mania, you know, it's 42 years. Yeah. 42 years. So what I often do, is I'll take that date, 1981, and I'll subtract 42 years from that. Yep. So that would be, what, 1939? It's crazy. I do that all the time. So, you know, I remember 81. I was 15 years old. I played high school baseball. Seems like yesterday. You know, 15-year-old Eric, thinking of 1939, I mean, you're talking Lou Gehrig's era.
0: That disturbs me. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, the things I feel like in life that mark history in our brains, people like us, number one is having kids and seeing them grow up. Yeah. And number two is realizing that your favorite sporting events took place a gazillion years ago and that your favorite athletes are either really old or really dead. And it's just like, it's a jarring little world, you know? It is. And it goes fast. It sure does. You kind of have a college industry now about writing I would say you are a baseball nostalgist. Um, And I recently said, totally unrelated to you, so don't take this the wrong way. (laughs) I said to my wife, I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to do another baseball book because I don't think people have a, I don't think young people have a passion for baseball the way that you and I did growing up. And I feel like I don't, I'm not so sure if Mike Trout walked down a street in New York City that 50% of people would recognize him. And if we go back 40 years ago and you take the 100th best player in Major League Baseball, let's say it's Manny Trio. I think Manny Trio walking down New York City would have been recognized by more than 50% of people. Is baseball still a commercially reasonable thing to write about in book format?
1: Um, let me say this. My core audience, the age range is 45 years old to 80 years old. Right, And I would say, I mean, I did um, a lecture book signing up in the Boston area a couple of years ago, and I would say there was about 40 people there, 45 people. I would say the average age was 70 (laughs) and I'm not kidding. You know, and, and it's fine. The questions that they asked me Uh are off the charts. Good. I mean, the people that show up for these events, you know, they know their stuff and, and it's great to be in that audience, but yeah, I think about it too. I'm like, um, These books I write about, you know, I I mean, is a 30-year-old going to be interested? Is a 20-year-old going to be interested? Maybe the hardcore fans, but I see very, very few um, under the age of 50. And it is concerning. Although I think people 50 and older still read books with more frequency maybe uh, than younger people. I mean, we're in a TikTok world now, and I think that plays into it but I probably do need to get a little bit more current um, in my next book. Well, my next book won't be, it's with Dwight Evans. So it's that same era. Um, That'll be, you know, book number nine, but book number 10, you know, maybe I do something on the 98 Yankees or something like that. Just, Just came out.
0: Jack Curry just wrote a book on him. I saw that. I know, know. spoiled again. Um, (laughs) Wait, I actually wanted to ask you about that. You're doing a book with Dwight Evans, former uh, Red Sox outfielder. For all you kids out there, former Red Sox outfielder, and um, your 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 career is really sort of a mix. Uh, I was going to say hodgepodge, but I always wonder if that's a negative word or a positive word. But your your career is a mix of writing with an athlete and then writing books uh, as an observer, as a biographer. When you sit down and you're working with Dwight Evans. Do you get the same joy as you do going around interviewing 500 or whatever, 300 X number of people and doing it? Or is sitting down with one person, does it ever feel like you're in a tunnel a little bit?
1: It does feel like you're in a tunnel for sure. All my books have one common thread. The stories are human interests. They all transcend the sport. So really, they're not, they're not, I mean, they are baseball books. But they're more about the human, the human struggle, challenges, overcoming those challenges, sometimes not overcoming those challenges, like with my Glenn Burke book, which incidentally, I'll plug it. Uh, it's being turned into a miniseries by Jamie Lee Curtis oh, nice. uh, on Netflix. Yeah. So that's being worked on now. You know, but that has a sad ending. So these books, they could be about, you know, other sports other than baseball, they don't even have to be about sports. You know, like you're writing a book now about Tupac. I, before I'm done, I would love to write a book um, with a rock star. You know, it's a similar life. In fact, a lot of rock stars want to be baseball players and baseball players want to be rock stars. Um, I I would, you know, somebody like like a Paul McCartney or a Billy Joel or... You know, or somebody like that, or you know, that they, they would. I mean, there's no chance in hell that I, I I would get them. But you know, something like that I think would be fascinating, um, and it would be different. Um, I mean, let, let me ask you, like, what what was the impetus to have you cross the line from sports to Tupac?
0: I always wanted to write a Tupac book, and I kept waiting for someone to write a definitive definitive biography. With no affiliation to the estate, just a straight biography, and I didn't see it. And I'd always, I'd, I'd gotten a little dry on sports a little bit, you know. And and I just thought now's the time, you know. My last book sold well, and I, I'm in a, a little bit of a. The HBO series is definitely not hurt as far as a you know, little swag, so um, I just kind of went for it. And now I'm losing my mind like I do in every book. <laughs> but I will say this: the interesting thing is, being a sports writer prepares you and writing sports books. It's it's no different. So the same. The same approach. I mean, like that. That the approach I take to sports books is the same approach I take to Tupac, and it'd be the same approach. The same approach you'd take to writing Dwight Evans's book or Mookie Wilson's book. I would think it would be the same approach you take to doing uh, Paul McCartney's book when he calls you. Absolutely, and so so why why would I do an autobiography?
1: Um, you know, Mookie Wilson was a sharecropper's son, had nothing, lived in, uh, blatant racist South Carolina in the late 1960s and rose above all that to become the darling of New York. Like I always said that Mookie wasn't the greatest med of all time, but he's probably the most beloved. And with Dwight Evans, he had his near hall of fame career hopefully he'll get in. Hopefully he'll get into the hall of fame the year the book is published. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, he had this great career while raising two two boys with uh, neurofibromatosis, which is commonly known as elephant man's disease. And, and he lost bo- both of his sons when they became adults. But that was a tremendous, tremendous strain on him and his fa- family. And many nights he'd leave hospital rooms after, I mean, both of his boys had over 40 surgeries. And he would leave hospital rooms, go out to the ballpark, and I mean, there's one instance he actually, his son in the hospital bed, he said, hey, Dad, would you hit me a home run? And he said, well, you know, I'll try. And it's like out of the Lou Gehrig pride of the Yankees movie. And then Dwight's about to leave. And he says, hey, Dad, would you hit me too? And um, Dwight's like, ah, all right, all right, I got to go, I got to go. And he hits two home runs. And I know that because I was at the game. I, I went to Ted Williams baseball camp. And it was, one of our trips was to Fenway Park. This was in 82. And I was there that night that he hit the two home runs for his son. And I went back and everything fits. It happened. So you have those nuggets, those stories. So my autobiographies aren't just about people. Like Derek Jeter to me would be a difficult autobiography or biography because he lived such a charmed life. You know, like a bad day for Derek Jeter, I always said, was, uh, you know, tripping over a supermodel's pumps on his way to get coffee in the morning. You know, he had that kind of life. Certainly, he had some challenges,
0: but nothing on the scale of so many others, you know? You know, what's interesting. I would disagree on that a little bit, only in that, like you're talking about Dwight Evans. I didn't know that about Dwight Evans. And I always looked at Dwight Evans as a sort of regal outfielder with the Red Sox. And he had Rice and he had Evans and these two guys. And they're playing for this passionate fan base and Dwight Evans. He has one of the great arms in baseball history and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh shit, look at the struggles he had. And I actually think, I mean, I know what you're saying about Jeter, and I can't disagree, but we all have our shit in life. You know, like we all do. And part of being, I think part of being, in a way, part of writing these books is sort of trying to understand the shit in lives. And and I bet Jeter has his shit. You know, it can't be can't be that perfect. You know, I don't know. Maybe. Wait, um. You wrote a book years ago, Two Sides of Glory, about the 86 Red Sox, which um, I was viewed as like the the brother book to The Bad Guys One, my book about the 86 Mets, where you have these two books and these two sides. And you interviewed Dwight Evans for that. Is that actually how this project came to be? Yeah,
1: that's exactly how it happened. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, It was about seven years ago, six years ago. It was in 2017. And we're sitting um, in Fenway Park in Short Right Field. And he said to me, midway through our interview, he said, you know, um, a lot of people have told me that I need to write a book. You know, that, that so much has happened. And, um, you know, they keep saying it. And, you know, I never really talked much with reporters, never really gave them anything. And if I had a big game, I'd always say, well, you know, I'm just lucky that Marty Barrett got on base three times in front of me. And, you know, he 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 would be the first to tell you that. He was the worst for reporters because he would give them nothing. He'd give them bland answers. But he says, you know, but I really think I have a great story. And, And after interviewing him, I mean, I dedicated a chapter to him like I did with the other 86 Red Sox that I profiled in that book. And the feedback that I got from people was that was the most touching chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. So that's when I knew I had something with him. We just wrapped up our interview. So now I have all the contents that, that I need to get to work. The manuscript is due in, a, in an ungodly limited amount of time. October 2nd is when the manuscript is due. Hey, that's so, nice. it's, so as soon as I um, get off my high here doing my book tour in L.A., um, it's right back to the dungeon, you know, for the next six, about five and a half months. Um, but um, that's how it came about, with fight. Do you transcribe all the interviews yourself? You know, I I read what you write every single week. When and and you had a piece mm-hmm. on tra- transcribing, Which I read it three times. And the interview you did with Jonathan Iag, I think you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anything you put out there. I'm just devouring because I can relate to everything that you're going through, the pain and the angst and also the glory, but mostly the pain and the angst. And 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 I must say, um, I, I always begin to tra- transcribe like early in Dwight's life. You know, he lived in Hawaii. There are all these obscure Hawaiian cities and all that. I'm like, these transcribers are just going to butcher this. Mm-hmm. So That I transcribe on my own. Um, I ice my neck for three days after I'm done, you know, with the hours and hours and hours of transcribing. But the stuff, you know, when you get to 1975, um, when the Red Sox had that great season, they went to the World Series against the Reds. um, I know that subject so cold that I'm like, yeah, let me turn this over to a transcriber because there's a ton of stuff. And if the transcriber makes mistakes on names and everything, it's no problem. Like I know what they're talking about. Um, so I mix it up. Um, I do
0: both. Yep. Fair enough. Let me ask you a final, well, a couple of final questions. Number one, how much does it piss you off that there's another writer named Eric Sherman who has ericsherman.com?
1: <laughs> and he spells it with a K. With so, a K. All my, so all my life, um, people misspell my first name because I think nine out of 10 people, It's E-R-I-C, not E-R-I-K. So the one time that that would benefit me, incredibly, there is another writer, and and he makes his living. I mean, he's a a serious writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and he's really, I mean, he's out there, and and he spells it Eric with a K, Sherman. And on Twitter, um, it's, I mean, he's got, at Eric Sherman, I mean, he got to that first. So I go by, at, by Eric Sherman, by Eric, Eric Sherman. But yeah, he gets my stuff all the time. I get his stuff all, all the time. I won't name the publisher, but one time my royalty statement was sent to him by mistake.
0: Uh, so. <laughs> These are looking up for the other Eric Sherman. This is great, money coming from the sky. <laughs> a good day to be Eric Sherman with the K, K, non-baseball writer. I, well, you know, I'm required to ask this, and again, you're a very nice guy and you've had a sort of a lovely career and you clearly get along with athletes and blah, blah, blah. Do you have a good confrontation or awkward story for me to wrap this podcast with? The Jim Rice
1: interview was a little bit awkward. What happened? First of all, I give him credit for granting me the, the interview. This was for my 86 Red Sox book and they were working on one of his legs. So he was in pain. and And so I was trying to find some middle ground. And you know something that you know that we have in common. So I said to him, you know, Jim, my mom, um, she retired to Salem, South Carolina. That's not far from where you grew up. And he's like Salem, Salem. I don't know where that is. And I, you know, and and he starts laughing about it. He's like Salem, Salem. And he goes in, gets his leg worked on. He says, look, I'll be out in twenty minutes. And so about an hour go goes by and so forth. But I'm, I'm thinking it's cool. You know, he's kind of a serious guy, but I have found something that made him laugh. And so the interview is going to go so smoothly. Well, he came out and maybe he was in some dis, dis, discomfort, but he had, he was back to being super serious again. And, and, um and so it was kind of a, a bit of a struggle to um, to really find um, something that would be entertaining, and 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 we did. Like we started comparing the '86 um, and '75 Red Sox against the you know the four World Championship teams of this century uh, of the Red Sox and comparing them, and and he believed you know that the '75 Red Sox were you know the best team of. This generation. Um, so, anyway, it, it, it kind of was, uh, you know, tug and pull, tug and pull. Um, I mean, the greatest interview maybe I, I ever had, the most entertaining was with Lenny Dykstra oh because God. I came prepared with my questions. And after two minutes, I realized they weren't worth the paper that they were printed on. He completely hijacked the interview went off for four hours but it really worked because it was so entertaining and that was Lenny you know it wasn't him just answering my questions it was Lenny being Lenny and I captured the whole atmosphere and what he was like with the Red Bull and you know he had YouTube and he's showing me videos of him with the Phillies and the Mets and and his greatest time and he just took it over and and that's Lenny you know hyper and and all over the place, no direction. and so that one really worked out. So I can't really say I've had a disastrous interview ever yeah, um good. where somebody like got up and walked out on me.
0: Did I actually ask you for money?
1: It was like, um, you know, to get us a room in the in the hotel uh, to talk. And you know, I don't know if it cost anything, probably
0: not. Myrick, the book is Daybreak at Chavez Ravine. It is uh, yet another ode to sort of baseball and your youth and this joy and this love you bring to the sport which is a beautiful thing and um, I appreciate you doing this as always thank you so much no I appreciate you having me on Jeff I really do thank you I want to thank today's guest Eric Sherman for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang you can follow Eric on Twitter at by Eric Sherman and that's Eric with a K and by Daybreak at Chavez Ravine wherever books are sold if you have a chance enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.